0: Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles, That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Thank you so much for joining us again today on the program and uh, for your faithfulness to tune in every week. And I believe the only way you can really get the gist of what we're saying is to, you know, go back and kind of watch some of the stuff we've archived. We have been teaching the book of Revelation for over a year now and we have archived everything that we have aired to date on YouTube. You can go there and get that playlist and it will answer all kinds of questions for you if you just started tuning in. Please go back and be fair enough to me uh, to get the context of what we're saying because I feel like we have shared to me what I think is a convincing argument as to what this book of Revelation is about. And much of it was written to a first century uh, church uh, first of all, it was written to seven churches that were really in Asia. Jesus would say himself, these things are about to shortly come to pass. In chapter one, they which pierce me will look upon me. And all, he would say, the time is at hand. All, all of the time imminent, he tells him in Revelation 21 and 22, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He said that 2,000 years ago. So it's going to be primarily relevant to a first century a group of people who are, I believe, the ones that are seeing this great transition. And we are clear over in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. I'm just going to read there and then jump in today and try to talk about, if I I can, the whole marriage uh, uh, ceremony and how it happened in Jewish Hebrew customs. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people, this is 19 of Revelation, and heaven saying, hallelujah salvation and glory and honor and power under the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For he hath judged the great horde which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hands. Now we already shared with you how that this we have showed you over and over and over again, how that this city that was judged can only fit with apostate Israel, because in her was found the blood of all the prophets that were slain. And the only group of people that you could attribute that to was in Matthew twenty-three, when Jesus said Upon this generation will come the blood of all the martyrs, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, will come upon this generation. And he prophesies to them, woe, woe, woe. And it's in the context of these parables, of the king's marriage, of the king's son, is preceding this. The marriage of the king's son, when the king made a wedding, he invited the invited guests. They did not come, and so as a result, he went into the highways and the hedges and compelled them to come in. That's both you and gentile publicans, sinners, harlots will enter the kingdom before you do and then the children of the kingdom were cast out where there was uh, weeping wailing they were cast out into outer darkness where there was weeping wailing gnashing of teeth it's also in the context of the owner of the vineyard sending his servants to see how his vineyard was doing and they mistreated the the servants that he sent some of them they killed others they stoned some they beat last but not least he sends his son his son then they said let's kill the owner the son of the owner will steal his inheritance. He said, what do you think that the owner of that vineyard is going to do to those wicked husbands? He's going to destroy them and burn up their city, which is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. in fulfillment of from Revelation 11 all the way through up to nine, chapter 19 of the book of Revelation where he says, Thou hast avenged the blood of the servants upon uh, their hands. The bride has now made herself ready. Uh, And there is a, uh, it says, again, it says that true and righteous are your judgments, this is verse 2, for he has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, hath avenged the blood of his servants at the hand of the Lord, at her hand. And again they said hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God, omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. He saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell down at His feet to worship Him. And He says, Don't do it, I'm one of the servants of the prophets. Now, I want to go and just uh, look back at the uh, whole tradition, actually, of the marriage ceremony. And I want to tie that in with the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew with another uh, parable about the ten virgins. But I got this from the web uh, concerning Jewish weddings and customs and the bride of Messiah, and I got it from a Messianic website that's talking about the custom of the Hebrew wedding. And let me just read this to you, uh, and then, uh, I'm not gonna read all of it, but points of it that I wanna make some points on uh, that I thought were just powerful. There are many customs appointed by God as teaching tools in, in in a unique way. The Jewish wedding ceremony, as opposed to any other cultural expression, is a detailed illustration of the Messiah's relationship to his bride. Now, the first one was called Shaddukim. S-H-I-D-D-U-K-H-I-M. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right or not. What, it, and, uh, what the Shadukum was is arrangements preliminary to the betrothal. And the Shadukum refers to the first step in the marriage process. The arrangements, the arrangements preliminary to the legal betrothal. It was common in ancient Israel of the father of the groom to select a bride for his son, just like it was, you see, in the book of Genesis when, you know, Isaac was uh, sent a, a servant to select his bride, Rebekah, you know, uh, 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 or, and then, uh, you know, he, uh, it was, so it was prearranged. The next phase was called, and so, you know, uh, the Bible talks about uh, those things, we'll get into what they mean in just a moment. The ketubah was the next step, it's, it was the next phase of the step was the ketubah. K-E-T-U-B-A-H, if you're taking notes. And what that word means is written. Written in Hebrew, uh, the ketubah was, and still is today, the marriage contract. The ketubah includes the provisions and conditions of the proposed marriage. And one of them was that the groom promises to support his wife, to be, and the bride stipulates the contents of her dowry, that is, her financial status. We see that described in Genesis chapter 24 also. Uh, despite the fact that this was an arranged marriage, it appears that the consent of the bride was very much a part of the ketubah in Genesis chapter 24 because they asked her if she was willing to go with Him. So there still has to you know, there is a movement out there, I think, uh, that, that tries to eliminate man's response to God's grace. But I believe it's not just either or, I believe it's both. It is by grace we are saved through faith. Grace is the sovereign act of God on your behalf, but faith is your response to it. I believe that you must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not forced into this marriage. You must consent to it. The third part of it was the mohar, or if you want me to spell it, it's M-O-H-A-R, and it was called the bridal payment. This is sometimes called the bride price. It is a gift paid by the groom to the bride's family, but ultimately it belongs to the bride. It, it, it changed her status and set her free from her parents' household. We see this illustrated in two biblical examples with Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24, verse 53, and also Jacob and his two wives, uh, Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. And then the third part of it was the mikvah, M-I-K-V-E-H, or the ritual of immersion. I think these are real interesting, and I'm going to describe what they mean as we get to the mech in a minute. Uh, Although not mentioned in the narrative to prepare for betrothal, it was common for the bride and groom to separately take a ritual immersion. The ritual immersion, or the mikvah, taken from the Hebrew, was prior to actually entering into the formal betrothal period and was symbolic of spiritual cleansing. In, illustrated in the, the uh, now this, this is how these things, now let me take you back now and show you how that it's illustrated in the Messiah's bride. The Shadukim, which was the first step of the marriage that we shared with you just a minute ago, uh, the, the first step of it, starts with the father's selection of a bride for his beloved son. So too we were selected by the Father to be His beloved son's loving and precious bride. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it said, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We were chosen for Him. Uh, so the Father chose us. As in the case w- with Isaac, there is a matchmaker, someone who uh, is, is, you know, a matchmaker for the bride, and, and uh, that matchmaker would have been John the Baptist, who said in John 3, 29 and 30, that he was the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, the, then what would happen is that the, the ketubah, uh, which is the also, we also have a legal contract of a ketubah, which is the new covenant itself. One of the things I've said to you over and over again is that the new covenant is our marriage certificate. Uh, I could take you back and show you, uh, You know, in in Romans chapter number 7, let let me jump over there real quick. I I hope I could go there real quick and just kind of hit this. But Romans 7, verse 1 says, No, you not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which hath the husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she, she she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Romans 7 talks about how Jesus came. Now I know there's a lot of different opinions about, uh, you know, what exactly is occurring here. Uh, You know, I've read some input and it's got some validity to me and Revelation where the harlot says, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow. And in other words, she refuses to recognize that her husband is dead. Now some people say that that's what was happening here in Romans 7 is that she literally killed her own husband and crucified the Lord of glory. That probably has some merit. But the context to me of Romans six and seven is Romans six is that we've become dead, in other words, we 've become dead to who we were in Adam, and so uh, what I think happens at the cross is that Jesus came not just to die for us but to die as us, so that there was a death to all men, so that all men, whether Jew or Gentile, because of the death of Their first husband, if you will, Adam, from the viewpoint of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Christ. That we are now reckoning our old man to be dead, and if he's not dead, then we're not free to be married to another here in Romans 7. Romans 7 is not talking about divorce and remarriage in the natural. It tells you that the second husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we should be, we're not going to get, but we should be married to another. So again, I'm setting this in the context of the new covenant. The new covenant is our marriage certificate, and we are married legally to another so that we can be married to him who has been raised from the dead so that we can bring forth fruit unto God. And our first husband, Adam, is dead. And if we don't reckon him to be dead, then we will never be free to marry another. And I'm thankful that my first husband, Adam, is dead and that we are free now, and that covenant, see, the old covenant was given to keep you connected to the old man, and the new covenant is given so that you can be connected to the new man. And so what's powerfully wonderful is the death of Jesus freed us from the tyranny of an old system, of an old covenant, of an old law that kept us married to an old covenant system of performance. And thank God that our old husband, Adam, is dead, and now we are legally not only available, but should be married to another, according to Romans 7. And see, if our old man is not dead, and Jesus is married to us, then He is an adulteress, and so are we. So He must know something that preachers refuse to tell us, and that is, our old man was crucified with Christ 2,000 years ago, and it gave us a legal right to be free from that system, and to be married to another. So the first part of Messiah's, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 our spousal, if you will, was that the Father selected a bride, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth. The second part was we have a legal contract, a ketubah. That's the new covenant. The new covenant gives us a legal right to use his name. It, uses us, it gives us the legal right to be intimate with him and to be able to bring forth fruit unto God. The next thing that happened was the Mohar. Now let me, let me see, let me, let me, I'm moving too fast. The group promises love and care for his bride and to give himself for her. He also has paid the proper price for his bride, and that is his own life. The bride promises to pay her dowry, her financial status, that of her yield, and, and, and the bride promises to pay her dowry, her financial status, that of her yielded life to keep herself for him. And in 2 sec, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says, For you are bought with a price. He's already paid it. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and spirit which are the Lord's. That's part of the, that is part of the uh, katuba, the second dimension of your wedding contract. Number one, He loved us, gave Himself for us. I covered that in prior segments in Ephesians 5. He presented us to Himself, not having spot, wrinkle, blemish or any such thing. He did at the cross. He paid the dowry. That's powerful to me. The mohar, M-O-H-A-R, is also illustrated in our relationship to Jesus. We are told in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, that we have been redeemed with a price. We're not our own. We are also told that our bride's price is not just silver and gold, but his own life. We were redeemed not with corruptible things of silver and gold, but, but the precious blood of Jesus. That's such good news to me. Both bride and groom, have undergone the waters of the mikvah, which was the ceremonial washing of immersion. And Jesus did this at the beginning of His ministry when John the Baptist dipped Him in the waters of Jordan to fulfill all righteousness. He was washing. He was the friend of the bridegroom who was giving him his mikvah and preparing him to get married. In the New Covenant The bride, we're cleansed by the washing of the water by the Word, but we're also immersed in water baptism as part of our ceremonial marriage contract. We've been washed, we've been made clean, we've been presented without spot, blinkle, or blemish. The next one was called the the arusin, or E-Y-R-U-S-I-N, or, if you will, in our English terms, the betrothal. Uh, This word uh, literally is the period, this period, of the betrothal, the period is called the kedushim, meaning sanctification or to be set apart. This word really defines the purpose of the betrothal period. It is a time in which the couple are set aside to prepare themselves to enter into the covenant of marriage. The Jewish understanding of betrothal has always been much stronger than our modern understanding of an engagement. The betrothal was so binding that the couple would, not, uh, would need a religious divorce or get in order to annul the contract uh, in order to break this, this agreement. This option was only available to the husband, which I think is interesting. As the wife had no say in the divorce proceeding at this point, I think could be made very poignant and powerful in that you can't decide to get rid of him, only he can decide to get rid of you. And the truth of it is, is he's not interested in getting rid of you. He wants to keep you. And I think that's pretty cool when you think of it in those terms in the New Covenant is that uh, once we get married to Him, He's not willing to get rid of us. The aspects of the betrothal then, after the couple had undergone the mikvah, or the immersion, or the spiritual washing, or in my case, I'm talking about the washing of the water by the Word and water baptism, each separately then, they would appear together under the hoopah or the canopy, and in public, they would express their intentions of becoming betrothed or engaged. From ancient times, the wedding canopy uh, was, has been a symbol of a new household being planned. And, all, and I, I wrote in my notes, this new household being planned is the new covenant household of faith. So they met under the hoopah the or the canopy uh, and they expressed their love for one another. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her that He might present her to Himself not having spot, wrinkle, blemish or any such thing. While under the hoopah, the couple participated in a ceremony in which some items of value were exchanged, such as a ring, I like this, or a cup of wine, was to be shared to seal the betrothal vows. After the ceremony, the couple was considered to have entered into a betrothal agreement. This period was to last for uh, at least one year. During this time, the couple was considered married, yet did not have sexual relations and continue to live separately until the end of the betrothal period. We see this time of betrothal illustrated in the Gospels as reflected in the lives of Joseph and Miriam in Matthew chapter 1, uh, 8. Now I put in my notes that this cup of wine was given on the day of Pentecost, that they celebrated this cup of wine and this betrothal agreement was inaugurated. It was the cup of the new covenant. That could have also been the one that was drank right after uh, Jesus, uh, you know, or when he, when he was about to go to the cross. He took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. I think every time we take the cup of communion, it is symbolic of our covenant relationship and our marriage to Christ. And because we're married to Him, we have a legal right to everything that belongs to Him. Wow, is that powerful. We have a legal right to healing and deliverance and He supplies all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That ought to encourage somebody sitting out there right now saying, man, you know what? I've got a legal right because of my marriage to him to receive the blessings and provisions of this new covenant. I mean, to me, that is just absolutely incredible. Following this betrothal, uh, there was a thing called the Matan, M-A-T-A-N, or the bridal gift. Following this betrothal ceremony, The groom would return to his home to fulfill his obligations during the betrothal, but just prior to leaving, he would give his wife to be a matan or a bridal gift or a pledge of his love for her. Its purpose was to be a reminder to his bride during their days of separation of his love for her that he was thinking of her and that he would return and receive her as his wife. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it said that when he ascended, man, I love this, when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. And the gifts He gave were five-fold ministries that were given for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints uh, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So God gave gifts as His token when He ascended, hallelujah. He's already betrothed. to Now I want you to see this. We got engaged. We got betrothed at the cross. The blood and the water presented us to Himself. The water baptism brings us into the covenant agreement. The cup that we drink brings us further into this covenant betrothal agreement. (coughs) Excuse me. And now he's going to give her a bridal gift, which is fivefold ministries that when he ascended, he gave gifts that is a pledge of his love for her and uh, to remind her uh, of her uh, 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 during that there are days of separation of his love for her and that he was thinking of her and he would return to receive her. Also, that during this particular time, it said during the... uh, uh, the responsibilities during this betrothal, during the betrothal, the groom's responsibility was to focus on preparing a new dwelling place for his bride and family. In biblical times, this was most often done not by building a new home, but by simply adding additional rooms to the family's existing home. The rabbis determined that the place to which the bride was to be taken must be better than the place she had lived before. This was a better covenant based on better promises with a better tabernacle and a better temple. I love that. So the house that he's preparing is not just a physical house somewhere in the heavens, but it's the house of God that he is himself. For in Revelation 21, there's no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple thereof. So we're moving out of an old covenant temple into a new covenant temple. We are moving into his house, hallelujah. It was not the bride's, it was not the groom's duty to determine when the place he was preparing for the bride, was ready. His father would make that determination and give the go-ahead to receive the bride. The bride also was to keep herself busy in preparation for the wedding day, specifically with the wedding garments were to be sewn and prepared. And uh, then uh, the, uh, the betrothal to his bride, as the, betroth, uh, as the betrothal includes the blessings of the wine under the hoopah. one of the last actions was to bless the cup of the New Testament, which Jesus did. The cup was to be blessed and He blessed it and said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. He said, I won't taste the wine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And he would drink that at the wedding feast. The, and I believe that was part of the betrothal process that took place at the day of Pentecost, when he popped the cork on a vintage of wine that had never been drunk before. Let me just jump down here. It says, uh, uh, "Where, where is the... The, the Matan, or the gift. He also gave a bridal gift, which I shared a while ago as well, was the Ephesians 4 gifts, but it's also uh, it said, or a bridal gift of the love of the Messiah being towards His bride. If indeed we are His betrothed, remember the words of the Matan, which means a gift or a pledge. In the Greek, the word charismata, or charismata, means gift. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that the pledge or gift is the Holy Spirit. Also, uh, a promise of love that He will return for us. Interestingly, this pledge was given at Shabbat, which is Pentecost. They gave the pledge during the Feast of Pentecost and uh, could be telling us a story not only about His love, but of His fulfilling, but what of His bride, what's she to be doing. During this one-year period, the bride is to consecrate herself and prepare holy garments for the upcoming marriage. Paul puts this preparation in very clear terms in Ephesians 5. The bridegroom is making preparations to return for his bride. We need not ask ourselves, uh, are we his betrothed keeping our garments clean? Are we arrayed in our bridal attire keeping our ketubah, our covenant promises? And then the final one is the marriage of itself culminating. This culminating step is called the process of of the Jewish wedding is called the nissuin, N-I-S-S-U-I-N. But before I get to that, I also want to say that the word gift here again, when he gives bridal gifts, is the same Greek word we translate charismata, or charismatic, and it is the gifts of the Spirit. So he gives us his gifts. You know, in the Song of Solomon, he shows up on her porch with gifts. He brings her gifts because he's courting her. We receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit as gifts of wedding gifts. They are to prepare us to become a bride, a wife, See, in this preparation, we're being prepared. We are a bride, but after we're married, we are a wife. And and you know, uh, once you get married, the wife's duties function far more different than the whole process of the uh, of being a bride. In other words, you start to function as a wife. But the culminating step in the process of the Jewish west the final step, is called Nesu'in. The word comes from comes from the word. N a a s a, which means to carry. This is a graphic description as the bride would be waiting for her groom to come to carry her off to her new home. The period of the betrothal was a time of anticipation as the bride waited for the arrival of her betrothed. One of the final unique features of the biblical Jewish wedding was the time of the groom's arrival. It was a surprise and that would take the bride uh, they the, the bride took the betrothal seriously expecting at the end of the year long period of betrothal she didn't know the she knew the approximate timing but she didn't know the exact day or the hour she was uncertain it was her father the groom that declared when that would take place and that brings me up to where i will deal with in the next segment the marriage which is the five wise and the five foolish versions that are brought in to this marriage, some were wise, some were foolish, some were ready, some were not. We're out of time. Take a moment to call that number on the screen. So, a seat into the ministry is what helps us take the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace around the world. We need your help. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in again this week. For anyone struggling to understand John's writings in Revelation, this book provides true, biblically-based answers. Through detailed insights into the letters John wrote to the seven churches of his day, you will learn how to avoid the mistakes of the early church to overcome today's trials and tribulations. This book will provoke you to thought and dialogue, bringing greater clarity and revelation of Jesus Christ.